Welcome to East Hills Alliance Church. Real people experiencing real change because of a real Savior. I imagine that when people asked Paul about how the church in Corinth was doing, his first response was always to sigh. Because of all the towns that he had established churches in, Corinth seems to have taken the most out of him. At least in Corinth, nobody tried to kill him that we know of, nor threaten a mad riot, but in terms of spiritual and emotional strife, Corinth takes the cake. Last week, we looked at 1 Corinthians, a letter Paul wrote to address the divisions and infighting in the church. Paul, in his message about Jesus, didn't make sense to the culture of Corinth, and the church there tried to exchange the cross for the Greco-Roman ideals of power and wisdom. But one of the fascinating things that you pick up on as you read these two letters is the complex relationship that the apostle has with the church. In fact, what we call 1 Corinthians is not even the first letter that we know of that Paul wrote to the Corinthians, because he actually mentions a previous letter that he has to clarify. And then between our 1st and 2nd Corinthians, we pick on this somewhat mysterious goings-on that involve a hasty trip to Corinth in a quote-unquote sorrowful letter. What seems to happen is that 1st Corinthians failed to stem the problems in the church. Timothy, Paul's protege and the man he sent to deliver this letter, comes back and reports that one of the members in Corinth is now leading a full-blown resistance that challenged Paul's leadership as an apostle and is subverting the gospel. And so the church in Corinth is descending deeper and deeper into chaos. Concerned, Paul hastily leaves Ephesus, where he's been staying, and he heads off to Corinth, hoping to meet with the church and this leader and, and address these issues but it doesn't go well. In fact, the leader of this resistance is adamant in his unrepentance, and he refuses to submit to Paul's authority and to Paul's message. And the experience, Paul tells us, is incredibly painful and humiliating. And so he goes back to Ephesus, and there he pens another letter, which we don't have, but in it he addresses the specific issues he came across, and he calls people to the carpet. In this letter, Paul says he wrote with much fear and many tears, as he was worried that the church there in Corinth was perhaps lost. In this sorrowful letter, he then sends with Titus, who's a bit more of a natural leader than Timothy. Well, Paul heads off to Troas, but Titus delays in returning, and so Paul has to continue on to Macedonia without him. And in Macedonia, Paul is pushed to the brink of breaking, saying that his spirit was troubled, that he despaired of life itself, that he was facing conflicts without and fears within, that he felt burdened beneath troubles that he was unable to bear. And I think he begins to worry about how far the church in Corinth has gone and whether Titus is actually okay. Thankfully, though, Titus catches up to Paul in Macedonia and reports that the church actually responded well to this letter, that they've disciplined this leader causing division. In fact, they've been so zealous in their repentance that Paul has to rein them back and remind them to try and restore this man to the community. And so then we come to 2 Corinthians, and in it you can read Paul's exhaustion from this entire situation, but you also see his hopeful relief. 
And this whole experience with the Corinthian church has made Paul reflective about his own ministry and his calling. And so much of 2 Corinthians is actually about Paul's life as an apostle and what it has meant, and also God's comfort through it all. And so our passage today is 2 Corinthians 5, 11 through 6, 2. And interestingly enough, it's the center of what we call a chiasm in 2 Corinthians 1 through 7, and it makes it extremely important. A chiasm is this poetic device where you have repeating themes or ideas in an A, B, C, B, A, or T, A, C, O, C, A, T format. And the middle part actually highlights the part that's important. And so even exhausted in Macedonia, Paul is still a literary genius. Now in our passage, Paul is going to lay out what he sees to be the purpose of his life and the core of his message. And as is normal with Paul, It's quite something. And before we go any further, I'm going to pray for us one more time. Father, thank you again for your word. Thank you that we can open it, that you have spoken to us through it. Um, Please remind us of your presence today. Please remind us that you are calling us to yourself. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, through the first five chapters of 2 Corinthians, Paul sets up this strange paradox because he's going to talk about how God has entrusted him with this new covenant. And this new covenant is one that far exceeds the old covenant that Moses delivered to Israel in the Old Testament. In fact, in every way, the message of Jesus outshines the old law. And so on one hand, you have this glorious ministry that Paul has, but on the other, you have the messengers of this message. And they're like Paul, and they look like anything but important. Because in contrast to the glory of Jesus, Paul looks pitiful and sounds weak, according to his opponents. He's been hounded across the Mediterranean by his own countrymen. He's been, he found himself whipped by Roman authorities. He's been stoned outside the town of Lystra, and he's generally poor and homeless, moving from town to town after a few years and usually staying with friends. He's not rich. He's not powerful, nor is he dynamic. Probably the most interesting about Paul is that his message tends to really make the Jews angry. And so while the message of Jesus is spectacular, its messengers are not. They're simple, fragile jars of clay. And these messengers are hard-pressed all around, perplexed, persecuted, struck down, and carrying in themselves the death of Jesus. And yet because of God, though they experience all these things, they're not crushed or without hope or abandoned or destroyed, and they reveal also the life of Jesus. Although wasting away on the outside, within the messengers of the gospel are renewed day by day as they focus on the eternal and the unseen. And within their ordinary appearance, they bear the incredible treasure of Jesus's gospel. And so when we come to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul starts by focusing on two eternal realities, the future resurrection and his intense desire to be at home with the Lord, and then also the final judgment, where we all will appear before Christ to receive what is due for what we did in life, good or bad. And so having reflected thus far, Paul now tells us what it is all meant, starting in 2 Corinthians 5 verse 11. He says, Since then we know what it is to fear the Lord, we try to persuade others. 
What we are is plain to God, and I hope it is also plain to your conscience. We're not trying to commend ourselves to you again, but are giving you an opportunity to take pride in us so that you can answer those who take pride in what is seen rather than in what is in the heart. If we are out of our mind, as some say, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. And so with his reconciliation with the Corinthian church still fresh, Paul is quick to assure them that he persuades others out of reverence for God and not to look good or gain a following among them. In fact, in pursuing others for Jesus, Paul comes across more often as crazy and insane and foolish, at least to the ways of the world. Because not many would look at Paul's life and think him a sane man. Because not only has preaching the gospel brought him much suffering in his life, but the lengths he has gone to reach people with the message don't make sense to a hierarchical and xenophobic society. In fact, later when Paul is on trial because of accusations of the Jews, he shares his story in front of Felix, who's the Roman procurator overseeing his trial. And at one point, Felix actually interrupts him and shouts, you're out of your mind, Paul. Your great learning is driving you insane. Because as we talked about last week, the message of Jesus doesn't make sense to the ways of this world. And so it makes sense then that the lives of Jesus' followers also look insane. And yet Paul's motive for pursuing this life is clear. That if we are out of our minds, it is for God. If we are in our right minds, it is for you. And so like Paul, the gospel he bears is this paradox of crazy and sane. And that it's crazy to the world, and yet it speaks the most sense. And Paul devotes himself to this because of one massive realization. Verse 14 says, For Christ's love compels us, because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. Now Paul and his associates have been overwhelmed by this commanding truth. And it leads them into the sorrows and sufferings that they face. That in his great love, Christ died and bore the death of all people so that all people might live. In another letter, one to the church in a town called Philippi, Paul beautifully lays out this passion in his life. This is Philippians 3, starting in 7. He says, but whatever, gains were, uh, but whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Now, it's rare to come across a passion like this today. And when we do, it's often in great athletes or performers who spend hours and hours practicing and sacrifice many things and relationships in order to get to the top. Now, and perhaps a more down-to-earth example is when I worked at Boys and Girls Club several years back. I had a bunch of first and second grade girls who were utterly fascinated with the movie Frozen. Um, 
So they'd hum, let it go, right, as they waited in line to get into a room. They'd shout it off key at the top of their lungs as they did their mischief. They wore Elsa shirts and Olaf shoes. You'd ask them their favorite movie, Frozen, of course. You'd ask them about their favorite person, Elsa. Not your mom? No, Elsa. What about Anna? No, Elsa. Um, your favorite movie other than Frozen, something else. They said, no, it's still Frozen. There's no other movie besides Frozen. And it got to the point where girls would ask me to call them Elsa, and then they would pretend to freeze me with their ice powers. Like, I, every time I hear let it go, I freeze up just a little bit. Um, like, these girls, they lived and dreamed and thought and frozen. It was the most compelling thing they had ever seen, the most irresistible story they had ever heard. Similarly, in Paul's life, nothing compared to God's love. Nothing came even close. And Jesus' willing sacrifice for our sins, Paul found a love revealed that was so compelling, so beautiful, so irresistible that he ordered his whole life by it. And yet in this new life we have because of Jesus and in Jesus, we don't belong to ourselves. Instead, we belong to the one who saved us. And so we can't go back to our old lives and old ways that lead to death. Instead, we enter into something more, something greater. And we'll hold on to that thought because we'll look at how great that actually is. But for now, continuing on in verse 16, he says, So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone, the new is here. All this is from God, who reconciled himself, uh, us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. And that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them, and he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. And so Paul tells us that the gospel does another thing, that it reorders our understanding of the world through reconciliation. In the past, we considered people according to the ways of this world. We saw them in terms of how useful they were to us, or we valued them for what they could give us or did give us. And yet in Christ, the old ways are gone, and we live in light of this new creation. Before Jesus, we were at war with God, but now in Jesus, we are reconciled to him. And there's something topsy-turvy here, because between God and the world, who was the wronged party? God was. That back at the beginning, our ancestors rebelled against God, thinking that they could rival him. That they distrusted and dis uh, disobeyed and ate the apple, deceived by the devil and the lie that God cared not for them. And throughout the history of our species, we have perpetuated that wrong and have carried this brokenness within us. But normally when you have a broken relationship, who is the one who makes amends? Right? It's always the party that did the wrong. Right? Or at least that's the way it should be. I mean, when we are young, we learn that when we do something mean to our sibling, which never happens, we're supposed to be the one who reaches out first and apologizes and makes amends. And yet as humans, we were incapable. As we mentioned last week, 
we were unwilling and unable to break from our rebellion, that we were stuck in our ways. And so God did something foolish, that he sent his son to die upon a cross to take our sin and offer us forgiveness, that in his love, God reached out to us and made a way for us who were lost and doomed in our brokenness and rebellion. And to be clear, Paul says that all of this is from God. It's not us. We couldn't and we wouldn't. And yet God did. And the priceless treasure that the messengers of the gospel carry is this, that God is willing to give himself even beyond the point of torture, shame, and death on a cross as a man in order to bring us back to him. Elsewhere in Philippians, Paul says it this way. Christ, being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. And that now defines not only our lives, but also how we understand all reality, the past, present, and future. But continuing on in 2 Corinthians, verse 20 says, We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. As God's co-workers, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain, for he says, in the time of my favor, I heard you, and in the day of salvation, I helped you. I tell you, now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. Now, Paul says that those who bear the message of Jesus are ambassadors. And today, we probably think of an ambassador as someone who lives in a foreign country and tries to make sure that relations between the two, uh, the two countries are healthy. And honestly, I don't think I've ever thought that our U.S. ambassadors had difficult lives. It's kind of romantic and adventurous. You get paid to live in a different country, and you're kind of a celebrity there. You know, sign me up. And yet, even today, an ambassador is foremost an occupation, that you're not supposed to serve yourself, but the interests of your people. And when you speak or act, there's a sense that you, your words and deeds are the words and deeds of your people. And so an ambassador has an immense responsibility and authority. Now, one of my favorite stories is about an old dead pagan, not a Christian this time. I like to vary it. In 168 BC, the Seleucid king Antiochus IV Epiphanes, who's actually tied to the prophecies in the book of Daniel, invades Egypt, thinking to claim it for his own. His navy had soundly beaten the Egyptian fleet off Cyprus, and so now the whole of Egypt lays open for the taking. In fact, there looks to be no hope for survival in terms of the Egyptian government. And yet, camped outside the city of Alexandria with his great army, Antiochus runs into a problem. The Roman ambassador, Gaius Pompilius Lanus, who comes meeting Antiochus bearing just a staff and the dread of the Roman Republic. See, the Romans weren't too keen on Egypt being taken, as it was not just an ally of Rome, but is also its chief supplier of grain. And so the Roman Senate dispatches Lanus in order to end Antiochus' invasion. 
Lanus enters the Seleucid camp to meet with the king, and then he demands that he leave Egypt and give up his designs for conquest. The Romans have already beaten Antiochus's Macedonian allies, and so now they can turn their full attention on the Seleucids if need be. And here's how one author dramatizes it. It says, King Antiochus IV of Syria came forward and went to meet Gaius Pompilius Lanus. Rome has no business in Egypt, he said, frowning awfully and direfully. Syria has no business in Egypt either, said Lanus, smiling sweetly and serenely. Go back to Rome, said the king. Go back to Syria, said Gaius Pompilius Lanus. But neither of them moved a single inch. You are offending the Senate and people of Rome, said Lanus, after a while of staring into the king's fierce face. I have been ordered to make you return to Syria. The king laughed and laughed and laughed. And how are you going to make me go home, he asked. Where is your army? I have no need of an army, King Antiochus IV, said Lanus. Everything Rome is, has been, and will be is standing before you here and now. I am Rome, no less than Rome's largest army. And in the name of Rome, I say to you once again, go home. No, said King Antiochus IV. And so Lanus stepped forward and moving sedately, used the end of his staff to trace a circle all around the person of King Antiochus IV, who found himself standing inside Lanus's circle. Before you step out of this circle, O king, I advise you to think again, said Lanus. And when you do step out of it, face east and go home to Syria. The king said nothing. The king did not stir. Lanus said nothing. Lanus did not stir. Time went on. And then, still inside the circle, the mighty king of Syria turned on his heel to face east, stepped out, and marched back to Syria with all his soldiers. Who knew that a sweet old man with a staff could be so terrifying? And yet that's how an ambassador functioned in the ancient world, that they came bearing the message and the intent and the power of their ruler. And that, Paul says, is what he is and does, that he comes bearing God's message of reconciliation and carries God's appeal to people everywhere to come back to him. But there's something else that's interesting here, too, because the word Paul uses for ambassador is the Greek word for a very specific type of ambassador that Rome would send to its provinces. Within the empire, there were two types of provinces that Rome conquered. You had senatorial provinces where the people had fully submitted to the rule of Rome. And then there were imperial provinces whose people refused Roman occupation and control and often had to be put in their place. So these ambassadors, senatorial legates, went to a people at peace and eager to please Rome. But imperial legates bore the message and will of Rome to a people rebellious and hostile. And do you want to guess which one Paul references here? It's the imperial legate. Right, in doing so, Paul reminds the Corinthians and us that this world is at odds with heaven. That Christians are God's ambassadors to a world opposed to God and that resists his rule. Because the ways of Jesus don't make sense to the world. That if we were ambassadors following the logic of our times, we consider those who hate us and persecute us as enemies, just as an imperial legate would have the province in which he was stationed. 
And yet because of Jesus, we see all people to be cherished by God, who desperately need him, but who are trapped in their rebellion and doomed to the death that sin brings. And because this world is hostile to God, still deceived and distrusting and disbelieving, Paul's life as an ambassador is one of suffering and hardship. And he looks insane, just as the message he bears is insane. Paul puts it this way in a letter to the Romans. He says, you see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if, while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. It's not the way of the world to be reconciled with someone who has hurt us with someone who has resisted relationship, with someone who opposes us. And yet God did and does, going even further, allowing himself to be hurt by our hands so that he, we might find the full extent of his reconciliation in the outstretched arms of Jesus. As I mentioned earlier, the life we have because of Jesus is one that doesn't belong to us that it exists in this new reordered reality, and so it makes no sense to continue on the old ways of death that define the broken world we came from. And yet there's something deeper here that Paul keeps hinting at. Earlier in chapter 5, he says that Christ died for all, that those who live shall no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them was raised again. And again in verse 21, that God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Because in these, we find the great mystery of our reconciliation. That's not that Jesus dies and God pretends that everything's okay now. Because it's even greater and deeper than that, even more nonsensical and overwhelming. Because God reconciles himself to us by uniting us to him. When we believe, God unites us to him through his spirit in his son, according to the Bible. And that's a sermon series all on its own. But what it means is that all that belongs to Jesus becomes ours. And all that belongs to, him or to us becomes his. So our sin, our death, our debts become his own. But his life, his righteousness, even the love that Jesus has always experienced eternally with the Father and the Spirit, that he shares Two with us. Back in 1520, an old dead Christian named Martin Luther picks this up in one of Paul's most powerful metaphors for God and his people, that of marriage. Luther says that faith unites the soul to Jesus just as a man and woman are united in marriage, which Paul reveals in a letter to the church in Ephesus. So then, if a true marriage has occurred between Jesus and his people, then Luther writes, it follows that all they have becomes theirs in common, as well good things as evil things, so that whatsoever Christ possesses, that the believing soul may take to itself and boast of as its own. 
and whatever belongs to the soul, that Christ claims is his. If we compare these possessions, we shall see how inestimable is the gain. Christ is full of grace, life, and salvation. The soul is full of death, sin, and condemnation. But let faith step in, and then sin, death, and hell will belong to Christ, and grace, life, and salvation for, to the soul. For if he is a husband, he must needs take to himself that which is his wife's, and at the same time impart to his wife all that which is his. For in giving her his own body and himself, how can he but give her all that he is? And in taking to himself the body of his wife, how can he but take to himself all that is hers? Now, if this is true, and it is, then could we be any more secure before God? Could we be any more certain of our reconciliation with God? Because knowing deeply our lostness, God ensured a way to bind our wandering hearts to him. And so our salvation, our forgiveness, our life, all of it is from God, as Paul says. And all of it now depends upon God. That where we were unwilling and unable to come to God and be reconciled, God was both able and willing. And in Jesus, God gives himself to us so we might ever share in his life goodness, and love forever. Now, as God's ambassadors, then, we who have been reconciled urge others to be reconciled also. That Jesus willingly and lovingly takes our sin upon himself and gives his life to all who believe in him. And it's not about what you have done or the ways you have failed. It's not about the good intentions you've had or how faithful you may have been. That instead is about what Jesus has done. It's about the ways he has succeeded. It's about his unchanging love and his unfailing faithfulness. It's about his death and his life. And so along with Paul, we carry God's appeal to all people. Be reconciled to God. Right? Because now is the right time and now is the day that you can be saved. Now as we reflect on our own lives is this the message that we bear to those around us? By claiming to be Christian, to follow Jesus, we reveal ourselves to be Jesus' ambassadors. And so everything we say and do or post online becomes a picture of God's people and God himself to others. As the Roman ambassador Lanus said, everything Rome is, has been, and will be is standing before you here and now. Do we live like we know we have that great a responsibility? When I lived in Hungary, I was one of the few Americans in my town. And so everything I did then became what people pictured all Americans to be. And so now there is a bunch of young Hungarians who think all Americans love pizza, baseball, sci-fi novels, bad puns, and the English language. And yes, all of that is silly. But as a follower of Jesus, do I truly reflect Jesus as he is? Is the new reality of reconciliation apparent in my life and how I relate with others? Do others see the compelling love of Christ? Or do they still find me continuing in the old broken ways of death that drive people further and further from finding relationship with God, with the God who loves them and wants them to share in the life of his son? 
Are we ambassadors of God's reconciliation? Paul's reconciliation with the Corinthian church found its roots in the deeper reconciliation between God and humanity. That's about finding relationship with God, not through anything we've done, but because God has found us and has pursued us and has loved us. And that in his great love, God has united himself to us so that he might take our death and share our life. And it's that love that compels Paul, that makes him insane to the world, and yet the most sane man of all. And it's that love that dominates his life and work as God's ambassador. When we continue to discover the love of God in Jesus more deeply, we too join Paul in the crazy but sane life. A life that belongs to Jesus, but one that fully knows that Jesus fully belongs to us as well. Our God is crazy, by all accounts that this world reckons. And as his ambassadors, we should all be insane too. Let's pray. God, we, we thank you for the overwhelming ministry you have given us. That in our communities, we bear your name. That we are your representatives and ambassadors of the reconciliation you offer to us and to all. Help us to, to realize more and more how great that is. And help us to walk in it. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for checking out our podcast. Find out more or connect online at easthillsalliance.org.